watchers in the fourth dimension. If we fail, I will kill you. And drop your weapons, or I'll kill him with this deadly journey, baby. Your father was a warrior. Do not shame him. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And Zuanan, save me! This episode, we're heading somewhere that the Doctor has been before, and there were consequences. But before we talk about that, I'm going to take a quick look at the mail. First off, we received an absolutely impassioned defence of a show that we have maligned fairly regularly. <laughs> Space 1999. <laughs> this came from Zachariah Sear, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it was quite a long defense, so I'm going to bring it down to an edited summary and a few highlights. First off, there's mention of some of the more obvious elements that were actually done very, very well. The model work, the sets, and Martin Landau's acting. Zachariah then talks about how the show gets into some really deep philosophical concepts in the first season, and really explores the boundary between sci-fi and fantasy with an overall viewpoint of space is just so much weirder than anyone could possibly imagine. That being said, they also fully acknowledge that things kind of fall apart in the second season, with a different cast, different sets, new costumes which are segregated based on gender, and monster of the week action as opposed to those deep philosophical concepts of season one. The defense wraps up with a plea for all of us to give it another go. And what I will say is that I actually recently started rewatching season one for the first time in decades, and candidly, I'm enjoying it so far. We'll see how that continues once I get into season two. And happy for everyone to know, I've never watched it, so I was not a part of the bashing. <laughs> so you're going to give it a try? Where do I watch it? I'll figure out. I've got it on Blu-ray, but I'll see if it's available to stream anywhere. Do we know if Zachariah is related to the creators of the show or <laughs> producers of the show? No, seriously, I will give it a shot. I was aware of it and always was aware of its not necessarily stellar reputation, but I do really like Martin Landau a lot. So that's worth it for me. Awesome. So yes, we will all give it a shot. Moving on and looking at some episode-specific feedback... We will start with our season 13 retrospective, and first and foremost, our real-life friend Alan Stevens, who was a very close personal friend of Don's, says, The Don Smith Award for Unnecessary Fan Wank is the most amazing tribute I've ever seen. <laughs> Don would be over the moon about this. All the wishes of love and continued success to you three. Alan, thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. Next up, we apparently have Invasion of the Allens, because Alan Siler also <laughs> piled onto this, saying, I'm so glad to hear the announcement of the Don Smith Award for Unnecessary Fan Wank. Not only as a lovely tribute to Don, but because you are going to need it when you get to Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> Overall, this was a fun episode, and I'm with Anthony. Let the stats run wild and free. Oh no. I'm not as much of a stats nerd as Anthony is, but I always find it fun to see how rankings compare over time. I think Riley and Julie both have a shut up, stop encouraging him <laughs> attitude. We can only let it go so far. Yeah. Austin Patterson also talks about our new award, saying, love the new award, very fitting for Don, and I feel like we're going to see some hot contenders for it in upcoming seasons. Also... Julie talking about companion Doctor duos she liked more than Sarah and Four made me envision an alternate reality where the episode's school reunion was replaced by a story where David Tennant has to go to the 18th century, Scotland, 
to stop an invasion of Anthony Stewart head monsters and has to chat up the local laird to stop them, who just so happens to turn out to be Jamie? <laughs> Austin, buddy, we are going to need to have a conversation about getting my co-host overly excited. Please. <laughs> I mean, if we can continue bringing in Jamie at least once per season, it'd be great. <laughs> Next up, Keith Burton, otherwise known as Doctor Who on Target over on Instagram, chimes in with, it's so fascinating to me that some of your opinions don't reflect accepted fan wisdom. <laughs> Us longtime fans saw these once, one episode per week, and then they were gone. Our only way of revisiting them was through the Target books. Over time, our distant memories and our cherished novelizations rewrote our memories and shaped our opinions. It's why I'm an advocate of you three reassessing some of the less well-regarded stories by reading the books. For example, Planet of Evil is far better on the printed page than on the telly. I can believe that. Believe I can it. believe that. <laughs> Keith, I will say, we have heard you. We were talking about doing a Target Book Club bonus episode earlier this year, before Don passed away. Um, when that happened, we put it on hold. But I'm hoping it's something that we'll have the time to do sometime in 2024. So it's still kind of on the radar. Next up, our good friend J.M. Casey states, It's so weird that until now, I never really thought about how womanless season 13 and to a lesser extent 14 are. But it really is a thing. And as soon as the Graham William years start, we see women in basically every story, even if that's not always for the better. Ah, Horns of Nymon, that's a Watchers episode I just can't wait to be made. Well, we are slowly getting there. Another good friend of ours, Adam Wright, says to us, I've always had a special place in my heart for Sarah Jane Smith. Watching any episode with her is like watching an old friend. For a season, I rate my top story based on if I could watch it at random. For me, this season, it's Pyramids of Mars. So yeah, Julie, I'm not the only one. <laughs> I like the way it flows. Seeds of Doom is my close second because it gives me James Bond feelings. All right. And last but not least on our season 13 retrospective, we have Mark Dunstan, who states, It was a good season. Brain of Morbius the best. Planet of Evil not so good. Pyramids of Mars has the best ever episode one cliffhanger. Incidentally, the Tomorrow People did an Egyptology-type story with a woman entering a sarcophagus that aired exactly the same week as the first episode of Pyramids of Mars. Okay. Oh, okay, interesting. No. Moving on to our bonus episode on Doctor Who and the Pescatons, we start with Andrew Wilcox, who said, "So soon after Planet of Evil, <laughs> there are laws against cruel and unusual punishments, you know." <laughs> And yes, Andrew, we did wonder if we were violating the US Constitution in subjecting ourselves to this little curiosity. And then lastly, J.M. Casey comes in again, and I normally try and keep these to one comment per person per episode, but this one was good, so I kept this one in. So he comes in again with a tale from his childhood, where he says, Now, this Canadian here has got to share something. Around the time I got this tape, I used to enjoy making prank calls on basically random <laughs> numbers. It was just as stupid as you are probably imagining right now. Sometimes I would get together with a friend and we would do this together. This was just before the time of easily available caller ID, so it wasn't too likely we'd get caught. I had this new Pescatons tape, and I had this fun idea that we could look up a doctor's office and give them a call. I don't think we were ever actually put in touch with a doctor who obviously had better things to do than answer phone calls from nine-year-olds, but that didn't stop me from playing an excerpt into the phone. It was Zor, of course, saying, We meet again, Doctor, for the last time. <laughs> I still hope we freak someone out doing that. <laughs> Amazing. 
Absolutely amazing. Nice one, JM. And that's our mail. As a reminder, we really love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many as possible on the show. So please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, or you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. <laughs> you guys are not free of me yet, because next up, it's behind the scenes. And with The Face of Evil, this one has its origins in a promising young writer sending a brief, unsolicited script submission titled The Silent Screams into the Doctor Who production office. It was early 1975, and that writer was newcomer Chris Boucher. While the script was unusable, its quality was impressive to the point where producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes decided to work with Boucher on more suitable concepts, and it was suggested that he develop a storyline involving a society controlled by a malfunctioning computer. Hinchcliffe also wanted a situation in which the Doctor had to deal with the consequences of his own past actions. Accordingly, Boucher developed a storyline called The Dreamers of Phaedos, scripted for the fourth Doctor and Sarah Jane Smith, and set on a giant colony ship. Hinchcliffe and Holmes continued to iterate the proposal with Boucher. Hinchcliffe disliked the spaceship setting, and taking inspiration from Mount Rushmore, proposed the idea of the Doctor landing on a planet to see his own face carved into a mountainside. As part of these revisions, Boucher developed the characters of Andor and Leela, the latter of whom he envisaged as a mix of Palestinian terrorist Leila Khaled and Mrs. Peel from The Avengers. Now, that's an interesting combination. By the time the scripts were submitted as The Mentor Conspiracy at the end of October 1975, Holmes found that it still needed work and rejected it from season 13. Unperturbed, Boucher continued working on his scripts, introducing the rival tribes of the Sevateam and the Tesh, and taking influence from Aldous Huxley's Brave New World as to how the tribal religion may have evolved. At the end of January 1976, full scripts for the serial were requested, now using the title The Day God Went Mad, which I think is an amazing title. I love it. Yeah. By this point, it was known that Elizabeth Sladen would be leaving the show, and that Holmes and Hinchcliffe had decided to delay introducing her replacement. Boucher was told to develop a one-off character who could fill the companion's role for the duration of the story. He began expanding the role of a male Sevateen warrior called Loke. However, Holmes felt strongly that a female character would be more appropriate, and so Boucher increased Leela's role, renamed Loke to Thomas, and diminished Thomas's role. Now, we talked about last episode that Holmes had a tentative plan to introduce a Victorian street urchin as the Doctor's <laughs> new companion, likely in the season finale. <laughs> While not totally against this idea, Hinchcliffe preferred the idea of a strong, more relatable female protagonist. And while reading a draft of Boucher's scripts, a compromise occurred to him. He appreciated Leela's confidence and felt that her primitive and childlike nature were along the lines of what Holmes was looking for. Holmes agreed. Yay! In mid-June 1976, it was decided that Leela should be retained for at least one more story. Since Boucher had taken the lead on developing her, he was commissioned to write a second serial, The Robots of Death, which would immediately follow the day God went mad into production. Holmes suggested that Leela could have some sort of supernatural power, which he suggested may have been inherited from a witch priestess grandmother. <laughs> I, I mean, it's fine. I know. There's worse things. Boucher, to his credit, didn't like this idea and instead gave her a sixth sense for danger, which I think is actually more appropriate. Pennant Roberts was assigned as director for The Day God Went Mad, and it was to be his first time working on the show. 
One of his most pressing responsibilities was to cast Leela. He auditioned 60 actresses to play the part and eventually selected Louise Jameson, who he had previously considered for a part in Terry Nation's Survivors. By the time Jameson was offered her contract at the end of August 1976, it had been decided that Leela would remain through the end of the season, and so she was booked for a total of 14 episodes. And prior to getting the part, she had made appearances in Tom Brown's School Days, Space 1999, We Can't Get Away From It, and, Julie's favourite, Emmerdale Farm. Among the 59 unsuccessful applicants was Pamela Salem, who was instead offered voice work on The Day God Went Mad and an on-screen role in The Robots of Death. Unfortunately, Jameson gained a frosty reception from Tom Baker, who objected to being saddled with a new companion and particularly one who was scantily clad. And he felt that Leela's violent tendencies were totally unsuitable for Doctor Who and its audiences. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He begrudgingly accepted Jameson when he was told that Leela was only to appear in three stories. Joining Pennant Roberts on the core backstage crew, we have a few returning crew members. Chris Doyley-John continues his run as production unit manager, while our very own Dudders continues his stint as composer. We also have a couple of new faces. As designer, Austin Reddy makes his one and only contribution to the show. During his career, he also worked on Adam Adamant Lives, Zed Cars, Survivors, and Top of the Pops, among other things. As costume designer, we have John Bloomfield making his first of two contributions to the show, and he will return later in the season to provide costumes for the season finale, The Talons of Wang Chiang. He had quite the career outside of Doctor Who, winning a BAFTA for his work on The Six Wives of Henry VIII, while also getting nominated for many other awards, including another BAFTA, a Primetime Emmy, and four Saturn Award nominations for works as varied as Conan the Barbarian, Waterworld, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, and The Scorpion King. Just legend. <laughs> legend. All the scantily clad people, legend. <laughs> I mean, you've seen the meme of the mummy being the reason why so many people are bisexual. Yes, of course. I mean, as it should be. And John Bloomfield clearly had a major part in that. <laughs> During filming, the decision was made to change the name of the serial to The Face of Evil a decision that Boucher agreed to as he felt that The Day That God Went Mad was a pretentious title. Agree to disagree, Chris. One notable element from filming was the inclusion of Zoanon's part three cliffhanger line, Who Am I?, which was recorded by 12-year-old Anthony Freeze, who was a pupil at the school where Roberts' wife, Betson Jones, worked as a teacher. That's amazing. Imagine being a school kid who loves Doctor Who and your teacher's like, hey, my husband's directing a few episodes. You want to come watch? Oh, by the way, you can be in it. (laughs) My mind would have blown. (laughs) On the very same day production wrapped on the face of evil, a photo call was hastily arranged to introduce Louise Jameson as the new companion. This was after the Evening Standard broke the news of her casting the previous night. Originally, the serial was scheduled to start showing on November the 27th, the week after The Deadly Assassin concluded, with the face of evil due to complete its run before a one-week Christmas break. Now, the season finale was having some script issues, and so the production team made the decision that a longer mid-season break would be necessary. So Doctor Who took five weeks off after The Deadly Assassin, with part of the show's time slot being filled by edited omnibus editions of season 13's Pyramids of Mars and The Brain of Morbius. Part one of The Face of Evil premiered on January the 1st, 1977. This, of course, as usual, ran over the next four Saturdays. 
In response to complaints about violence in several recent serials, the show was moved even later to start airing at 6.20pm, after Jim will fix it, apparently more appropriate for kids, and before Saturday night at the movies. And that takes us into this episode's short summary. I've talked a lot, so I'm going to hand over to Julie this time. Over to you, Julie. Did I need a scantily clad woman running around killing people with no hesitation? No, but it was an amazing thing to behold. Did I need scantily clad men being dicks to everyone? No, but at least they were better eye candy than the Time Lords. <laughs> Did I need a supercomputer having an existential crisis and yelling out, who am I, like Jean Valjean? No, but that part was rather fun. And finally, did I need weird green men in weird outfits with superiority complexes? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But let me tell you, this story delivered on all of these. The doctor befriends a woman who is banished for having original ideas and has to battle a supercomputer that he happened to damage himself so very long ago. And whether the computer knows it or not, After having spent years turning two groups at odds with each other, he will spend even more time trying to get them to agree. And at the end of the day, the doctor gets an unwanted companion who apparently wants to press all of the buttons. (laughs) There we go. Amazing. Thank you, Julie. (laughs) Okay, guys, let's dive straight in. Part one. I think what I really enjoyed off the opening scene, it's a classic kind of opening you have introduction of a character and stakes are immediately raised. You understand that she's at odds with everyone in the tribe. But I couldn't help completely just burst out laughing where after her father kind of stands up for her and he's going to take the blame or the punishment and she begs the tribal chief, he says, your father was a warrior. Do not shame him. And then with the perfect comedic timing, you hear the wimpiest screams come from <laughs> off stage. I know. Fantastic. It was wonderful. I was like, they had to have done that on purpose. The timing is just too good or just the screams are just too funny. And then, sorry to jump straight from that to something else. Baker comes out of the TARDIS. And are we breaking the fourth wall there or yes. not? Because it feels like we are. 100%. One. Yeah. 100%. And I always find it funny when people try to be like, oh, this is the first time people ever broke the fourth wall. And they always like to talk about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm like, did you guys (laughs) not watch the road movies with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope? Because let me tell you, they're breaking the fourth wall there. And it seems kind of fitting for this to be Baker's doctor that does this for the first time. Because based off all the behind the scenes we've heard in prior episodes and his other role that he plays in this serial, I like Baker a lot, but I'm starting to get the feeling that he would prefer a Doctor Who show where he was like Peter Sellers and he played all the characters. (laughs) So if Pertwee was the Shatner of Doctor Who, Baker is the Peter Sellers of Doctor Who? (laughs) I guess. Yeah, it's just, it's a bit much and don't get me wrong i really do enjoy him but he feels like he doesn't want to just be the best doctor he wants to be the doctor in that the show is his not the creation of many people's work over many many years and i'll give you guys a little bit of a spoiler but i think holmes and hinchcliffe did a fairly decent job of reining him in and managing Mm -hmm. him but once they leave You start to see over the next three seasons how the production team starts to kind of overindulge Tom Baker 
before in his last season they try and rein him in again when there's another change in production team. So you're kind of seeing this here. They're kind of giving him a little of what he wants with a small amount of time without a companion, but they're going to bring it back around and they've got a plan to convince him. Okay. But he's still a dick, apparently, to Louise Jameson behind the scenes because he doesn't want her there. Ugh, that's disappointing. He's a Time Lord, so of course he's a dick. <laughs> what I will say is he has since apologized to her and they now get along very, very well. Ah, great. A happy ending. He kind of realized maybe his ego got a little out of control, but we do see some of that for sure. Well, we might as well talk about the subject of his ire back then. Louise Jameson is Leela. I love her. She's the very first major character we see in this serial, and they do a fantastic job. I know that I had been told about... I, well, let me be clear. I had only seen Leela. I had never <laughs> watched a scene with her or even hear her speak before. And I have to say, they handled this really well. She did a very good job. The character was well-developed just on an image. This could have been real, real bad or difficult, mm -hmm. but they did a very excellent job and she was very, very good despite being scantily clad the entire time. But it makes sense in the context of the story. Her entire yes, tribe are scantily clad and she is the only woman we actually see, which incidentally, because she is the new regular, that is still a plus zero to the Philip Hinchcliffe women count for this story. I swore I saw... One of her tribe. Well, we, we hear others speak, but we don't see their faces, so it still doesn't add to the count. But regardless, I love how they approached her character because they just went for it and were like, she's a badass. We're not going to take anything back and all that kind of thing. Having the doctor be like, hey, stop killing people <laughs> <laughs> was rather fun. And I just really thought that it was really nice to see one who could actually like hold her own. And I mean, who needs a strong strapping guy to be a companion when you can have Leela? What if that strong strapping guy is Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> Jamie doesn't count. <laughs> Jamie's in a league of his own. Now that Julie brought it up, and I know we don't need to encourage Anthony to do any more metrics, but do we need a Leela body count? Ooh. Because... I'm pretty sure at the end of this serial that she's up to five or six. Did either of you count? Because if neither of you actually counted, we're not doing it. Okay. Um, I would only be, it's only an estimate, but. <laughs> yeah, we're going to give that a miss. Pretty sure she was on a string at one point where she like knocked out three within one minute. And I'm not even speaking about the shootout scene. Yeah, she goes ham. Yeah, she really does. I immediately like Leela. I like how our very first scene, we go straight in. It's like, bam. And she's about to get banished for blasphemy. So we're immediately being told she's a free thinker. And then the more we see of her, she's not afraid to bash some skulls together and kill people with Janus thorns. So she's also someone who isn't afraid to take action. We are immediately being set up with this badass woman. And I'm here for it. Absolutely. She is knocking people down left and right. If it's not the Janus thorn, it's the crossbow. Exactly. I want to talk about some things. She falls into it a little bit as well, but overall in this entire serial, the dialogue is so good and so strong in this entire serial, and it made me so very happy. 
And it's not just the dialogue, the setup's amazing because we are given this apparently primitive tribe. And if you're watching carefully, you see that their leader, Andor, sits on some very anachronistic technology as his throne. So you're already kind of starting to go, okay, there's more than meets the eye to this. And it just kind of introduces that without even saying anything about it. And then the more we learn, the more we learn the backstory. It's really well done. And on top of that, too, I don't know what happened, but there's a lot more cuts. There's a lot more editing. There's a lot more variety of shots within one scene. The production value looks higher than I've ever seen on the show before. And with some exceptions, but the set design and how many different sets they made. Yeah. I don't know. Do they have extra money for this one or something like that? But I feel like this entire serial was a complete shift from what I had seen for quite a long time. And it's all about the execution. Everyone and everything of the crew seemed to be top-notch. Dutters was excellent this time. I'm guessing that we should just go and think back to his earlier days as his synth phase, (laughs) because he's past that now. I don't know what happened, but it was a very, very strong all around. I think we've got two things going on here. Firstly, Pennant Roberts, he's never directed for Doctor Who before. So this is his first time. And he has some sci-fi pedigree. He, by this stage, has done two episodes of Doomwatch, nine episodes of Survivors. So while it's his first Doctor Who, it's not his first time doing sci-fi. And I also think the production learnt its lessons from Planet of Evil. They repeat the trick of a studio jungle shot on film. But then the spaceship interiors don't look shit. Oh, they look amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my complaint with Planet of Evil. You could see the seams on the sets. The spaceships in Planet of Evil looked terrible. Here, the spaceship looks good. Yes. So it's like they've learned their lessons and are doing the same things, but doing them even better. Something about the execution of this one is just top notch. And I feel like there's been so many times where we talk about a Doctor Who serial and we say the premise was good execution, not good. It had a lot of potential. I feel like this is the very first one I've ever seen where, and you can debate me on this, the premise is fine and good. It's not original. The premise is not original at all. In fact, it's a pastiche of Mm -mm. a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I can go into details, but I'm not going to bore everybody with that. We'll get to those points later. But the execution of this one has got to be the best I've seen in a long, long, long time. I keep thinking back, I guess I was maybe eating cereal or something when I was watching it. There's a scene where Tomas is, this is after they've invaded the ship and, or they're about to invade the ship. It's a reverse shot outside of the mouth of the sculpture of the mountain of the doctor's face. And they're like around the teeth and they're having a conversation and they light it behind them. This like beautiful sunset color. And I just was looking at and they didn't light them up brightly because the sun's behind them, but it was still able to be seen, had a lovely color to it, good composition. And I sat there, I'm like, this looks damn good. This looks really good. This doesn't look like you were saying like cardboard walls. I I was blown away. (laughs) Yeah, I think Roberts did a really, really good job on this. Looking back to what's on screen, because we barely even touched the plot of this. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about when Leela and the Doctor meet. Because that tells us a lot about this society and it's a jelly baby moment. So plus one on that front. But we find out very quickly that she thinks the doctor's the evil one and that the evil one allegedly eats babies. And the more we find out, you know, initially it's, does he have a doppelganger? Is this a salamander situation? Or 
is there something else going on here? And of course, there's something else going on here. But I just kind of love the world building here. It's done really well. And the members of the tribe are proper characters as well. Not just necessarily the classic dick character that we're used to. <laughs> not to say that they're kind and gentle. They are dickish, but they're not that outrageous, like megalomaniacal kind of everything's a threat to them. Everyone's kind of conniving, but no one feels the anxiety of, of that someone's trying to undercut them at all times. Well, and what's interesting is the last few stories have effectively had kind of duos, one with the Doctor, one against. So you think to the Deadly Assassin, and we had Engin and Spandrel on the Doctor's side, and the Master and Goth against. You go to Mandragora, and you have Federico and Hieronymus against the Doctor, and you have the other chap and Marco for him. Right. And I'm terrible with names, so... Even though I've literally <laughs> just put that episode out, I've forgotten the name. Giuliano. Giuliano, that's the one. Giuliano and Marco are with the Doctor. Whereas here, you've kind of got that dynamic and that dichotomy with Leela and Thomas on the Doctor's side, and then Andor and Neva very much against him. But then you've got Caleb, who is a nasty character, and he will side with either side depending on which one suits his interests of gaining power. So he kind of operates in that weird gray area that we haven't really seen. I think this is done so well. I guess at this point we should talk about the actual plot or the premise of, of what the actual episode is. We can talk all day long about all the other stuff, but most of the things that I took note on are either small things or, you know, it's like, oh, hey, the doctor is whistling Colonel Bogey's March again because, yes, that's what we need to hear. And more jelly babies because we do that twice. Ding. There's just so many fun little <laughs> things. Like he got captured by them and got blindfolded by his own scarf. It's genius. <laughs> yeah. So good. I actually love that second Jelly Baby instance and the gag around that. He's threatening someone with a Jelly right. Baby. And when they call his bluff, he just eats it. <laughs> it's such a wonderful visual gag. I feel like they are delving more into the fourth doctor, as I like to say, Back in his first serial, he's kind of doing the Bugs Bunny thing again, but I like it. Part where he walks in and he's like, what's that over there? And they all look over there and then all of a sudden he's sitting on the throne. Yep. That is straight up Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny kind of action right there. And I'm all for it. I like that. But they seem to be delving more into it now than they have in many, many previous serials. Another thing I liked, so I know Anthony mentioned in the behind the scenes about likening it some to a brave new world and i think one of the big things was warding off the evil being the same as checking the seals of a spacesuit mm -hmm. like just those little things there that when you add up enough of them builds a world we don't necessarily get that a lot in doctor who yeah and it's not done as an exposition dump mm -mm. you get lots of little hints through it that build this world. That's why I think this is so well done. There's a subtlety to it. And while we're on the topic, I feel like the things that this plot and premise hit on are, well, first off, the whole idea of a primitive human society that's being run by a malfunctioning computer, that is straight up classic series Star Trek right there. I think mm -hmm. there are like two or three Star Trek episodes that were like that. Also, the split of the high-minded tech or Tesh group and then then Neva team the more primitive and so much time having been passed reminds me of the time machine a little bit 
Yeah. Pretty sure like the Tesh seem to have psychic powers. And then that goes into the other thing that I saw from there was the whole high-minded, snobby, effete class having psychic powers reminds me very much of Beneath Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and I definitely think there's a reference to Beneath Planet of the Apes. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, we are. We've kind of touched on episode one or part one and kind of touched on a lot of things. But fundamentally, this is building to one moment and one moment alone. And that's the culmination where we see the Doctor's face carved into a mountain with that's the evil one. So good. And I, I love the Doctor's, is it? I must have made quite an impression. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> And part two. My favorite line in part two was the part where Andor is talking to Caleb and they're trying to figure out their strategy of their next raid, which I've got to admit that Andor has a lot of General Melchit from Blackadder Goes Forth going on here about <laughs> this idea of like, let's just keep doing these raids. Everyone gets slaughtered. We're going to just keep trying it over and over again. But I like when he tells Caleb, if we fail, I will kill you. Now, that's the type of top level man management that... <laughs> Yeah, that you should have when running an organization. Yes, obviously. That's what I used to do when I was running a team. They never <laughs> failed as a result. One thing I'm not sure of from a writing perspective, if a lot of some things came out of editing or not, but I like to think that our new writer has decided to at least look into Doctor Who somewhat <laughs> in everything, because again, dialogue is amazing. Using dead as a Dalek as just a casual phrase to throw out there and things like that. For a brand new writer of Doctor Who, I find that very interesting. And I suspect we know that Holmes and Hinchcliffe worked with him a lot on this, that some of this is Robert Holmes. Mm -hmm. The dialogue has Holmes's prints all over it. But what I love about Andor is how, Riley, to your point, he sends his people for wave after wave of attack but it's really at Neva's direction, claiming that it's what Zoanon is ordering. And there's just this blind adherence to religious leaders with no questioning. It's not so bluntly phrased as a critique of religion, right, but that's what right. it is. And the funny thing is, one could argue that you have it with the primitive group, but also the high tech group does it just, just the same. Oh, yeah. So it just shows that how that is something that is a trait that can be found no matter what type of society that you uh, bump into. It's really, really clever commentary. Yes, it is. And <laughs> I know we're jumping around because I feel like this happens on either serials that we really enjoy or serials that we really dislike. We don't really follow the plot because things keep popping up in our heads, things that we feel like we have to talk about. And I know that in part two, which we are on, I was disappointed with, once again, having the invisible monster. And I was seeing before how the production value in this serial was very, very good. And I thought maybe they saved a lot of money by having invisible monsters again. But then I saw <laughs> in part two that if you got to see what it was, it was just a giant Tom Baker face <laughs> floating around. I thought it was a good idea that they kept them invisible. <laughs> but I actually think given the concept of what it is being a projection of Zoanon, it kind of makes sense that it's a giant Tom Baker head. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it just kind of looks ridiculous. Like in the shot, though, it's fine because it's supposed to be striking and sudden. But he'd be looking like goddamn Pac-Man running around trying to like eat people. <laughs> the other parallel, just going back to the point on religion, that I think ties in almost to what we were talking about last time with the Deadly Assassin, is they have all of these relics. 
and no idea what they do. You know, they've got the hand of Zoanon that's just a glove from a spacesuit. Or that instrument that Neva shakes around the doctor when they're questioning him. Anything that Neva does. Yeah. Anything. But speaking of him, that actor knew what the assignment was and did it. It was so good. <laughs> it was so over the top and should have been just super corny. Anytime he was on screen, I was like, what's he going to do next? That's David Garfield, who we have seen before in Doctor Who. He was in the War Games as Von Weich. Oh. Oh, the German that, oh general. wow. Yes, yes. Now I recognize him. And he was phenomenal in that as well. He was strong in that, just like this. Also, I want to chime in on what you were saying, Anthony, about the relics. I do love that concept of the idea of not just necessarily relics, but just the idea of advanced technology from the past and things have fallen apart so much that the current society has no idea what they are, but they know that it had power. They know that it was valuable, but they just don't know how to do anything with it. It's just an interesting concept. And also just stylistically, it looks good. Call it uh, shabby tech chic, I guess. <laughs> and I think it kind of falls into some of our base fears, right? We feel like as a species, we've come so far and there's always that danger we could regress. You know who was really rocking the shabby tech chic? Khan and his group in Star Trek 2. Oh yeah, they definitely. That, they had the same look going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, overall, this is just, it's good. Yes. It's good. It's very good. It's very, very good. Back to plot. Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's good. As we talk about the fun little parts that we like, there's also then some of these big things that happen and the doctor figuring out this bridge that he has to go travel in order to get to Zoanon and realizing that it's through the mouth of his big giant statue because that's where a voice comes from. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's kind of brilliant in a really stupid way. <laughs> Before we get to that, I do want to talk about the trial that they put the doctor on. <laughs> Firstly, how he says that all of the accusations against him are flapdoodle, which I think is an amazing line. <laughs> but then this whole trial by skill with these little creatures that I think were called hoarders that are beneath the stones. Yeah, little snappy guys. It kind of made me think of I hate snakes. <laughs> You know, a little Indiana Jones moment. And we get another name drop, William Tell. So I know Julie was happy about that or mad. I'm not quite sure which. I just said woo. <laughs> Take that as you will. And the best part of the trial, just to rewind a little bit, is where the doctor is providing a running commentary of the debate between Neva and Tomas, where he does the yeah. whole 15 love. That was very funny. I <laughs> You know what? We complained about the politics in Mandragora, but the politics here are actually interesting. It's done so <laughs> yes, well that I are. actually care and I'm actually yeah. somewhat invested in it. It's balanced. Everyone has their own angle. It isn't completely divided down the line one way or the other. Andor seems pretty clear that he doesn't care too much about Zoanan other than just whatever keeps him in power. Tomas is also seeking power but looking to undercut in order to do that. And Neva is a true believer or till the end but it's very well balanced and going back to what we were talking about before you could see the bugs bunniness fourth wallness you could see the doctor <laughs> giving that line about the 15 love cracks about their debate 
and not saying that as an aside to Leela, but literally you could see him saying that directly to the camera. And I have this feeling that's what Tom Baker would have wanted. Just the audience is the companion and he's just talking to us the entire time. <laughs> All right. I feel like we've probably talked about most things in this episode. So Julie's already given us our cliffhanger, which was when Thomas shoots the giant invisible creature and we see the giant head of Tom Baker. And then Thomas shoots and looks intense. Cliffhanger. And part three. Well, now we get to see the inside the ship. Well, yes. But I also had a moment of reflection of why in the world did Caleb look so familiar and had to look it up and it's like, oh, he was that guy in Star Wars. Oh, was he? Yeah, Caleb was in Star Wars. He was also in the very, like, I think the second episode of Blake 7, where he was just a total dick and he played it <laughs> so very well. Apparently he can play a dick really well. Yeah, I hope he's a nice guy in real life or was a nice guy. I don't know if he's still alive. <laughs> but yeah, certainly he was very, very good at playing an absolute dick on screen. He is still alive. Hurrah. Okay, so we're on a ship and there's the weird wall thing, right? Yep. Which was kind of fun. And I like mm -hmm. how Leela approaches it of listening to the doctor because he's like, close your eyes. And she closes one of them. And he's like, both of them. I'm like, yes, this is perfect. That's the kind of companion I want. Once we get on to the spaceship and we start to meet the Tesh. <sighs> and again, they're high tech. They've got mental powers, but they are just as ignorant of their own origins as the Sevatim are. And they have their own superstitions. I mean, I couldn't help but notice how they'd set our altar with candles and what have you on top of the consoles of the spaceship. So they have fallen to this religion of Zoanon just in a different way. Right. And I believe they also still have like covers over the console. So it's not even like yeah. they were using them. Exactly. But what I want to know is why are they all dressed like they work at a confectionery or bakery? <laughs> Great question. It also looks like they belonged in Oz. They do. They do look like that. But we very quickly find out that Zoanon is playing both sides because the Sevatim believe that he's protecting them against the Tesh and the Tesh believe that he's protecting them against the Sevatim. So he always ends up on top. What an absolute wag. <laughs> yes, he is. Also, one of the Tesh attacks Leela and just casually says, oh, she's not damaged. Oh, right. And then they're going to perform an experiment in eugenics. Okay. <laughs> Immediately, the Tesh are worse, hands down. Yes. Don't like that. Agreed. Yeah. That said, so when they have her on that device, we do see the downside of our modern technology in that we're now watching on big screens, high definition versions and what have you. You can tell that Leela, this primitive savage, is quite clearly wearing a full face of makeup. <laughs> not a fault of the production, not a fault of Louise Jameson, just a downside of the technology we have now. Wouldn't have been noticeable on like a 12-inch CRT right. TV back in 1977. I just thought that was amusing more than anything. But when they have both of them tied up, after the Doctor challenges Jable's established views on Zoanon, that happens, Jable knocks him unconscious, and he gets tied up with Leela with a ticking clock. James Bond vibes much? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I was a little sad because a part of me wanted Leela to save herself, which isn't what we yeah. got this time around, but that's okay. It doesn't have to happen every time. Oh yeah, she's pretty handy, I'd say. 
<laughs> in plenty other scenarios, it was fine. I just, if she's a damsel in distress one time, I kind of want to see if she can gain out of it. So it's not just the doctor always. Right. I mean, she does return the favor mm-hmm. by saving him. Yeah. So, and providing him some cover. Oh, and sh- I cannot believe I'm going to say this. I have, since it started on this show, have complained about shootout scenes <laughs> every <laughs> single time. But I'm telling you now, that was actually well done. It was good. I enjoyed it. It was tense. (laughs) It was actually good. And I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. And I think they knew it was good because also they edited it so well, the intercut with the doctor's conversation to add to the tenseness, like her little laser gun has run out of juice. Will he finish up his conversation and get out of there in time? Like, what's going to happen? It was good. It was so well done. But what's funny about that in itself is part three is in a four part story is often the filler episode. So we get this long shootout, which is ostensibly filler. But to your point, Riley, it's actually well done filler. I cannot remember which Sarah Jane episode it was, but there was a shootout. And I swear that it was like the police squad joke where you see a cut to one side shooting over there, then a cut to the other side shooting, and then they hit the long shot. And you see they're like four feet away from each other. Yep. I remember you talking (laughs) about that. Right. Well, this one was clever. I mean, it just used the space that was provided, the very beautiful set. It added tension. Everything was done quietly. There wasn't any bad exposition like, oh, it's jammed. No reason to say it. Show it. Well done. I think the big thing, too, is that because it highlighted Leela, it wasn't just complete filler because it's telling you something about Leela. And that's another thing. A lot of the shootouts was just one side versus another side with really none of the companions or the doctor really playing in that because that's not their job. That's not their role. And this one is actually one of the companions being a linchpin piece in this shootout. Let's talk about Zoanon because it's in this episode that we find out that the whole reason Zoanon's kind of gone mad is because the doctor forgot to wipe his own data imprint from the computer core. Okay. Which, let me go ahead and point out right now, if they would have added in the plot point that the reason why the doctor forgot, because the doctor did all this while he was drunk, this would be a Rick and Morty episode. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, what we have is things like invisible creatures, which are projections from Zoanon's id, and also projections from Tom Baker's ego. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I like it and don't like it all at the same time, because... I don't know if it's all this talk that we've had today about Tom Baker being very full of himself, but it just seems (laughs) to add on top of the Tom Baker being full of himself. Just a bit. Just a bit. I'm fine with it. I actually enjoyed a bit of psychedelia it provided. Before we get to the conversation between the Doctor and Zoanon, I want to talk about one lovely moment that I really enjoyed, which was when... The Doctor is trying to effectively use Neva, pretends to be Zoanon, and Neva's basically saying, yes, yes, I'll do that. And at the end just goes, yes, Doctor. And it's like he knew. And that was just such a nice little window into how surprisingly perceptive Neva is. And he goes along with the Doctor and what he's asking for anyway. It's funny you mention that because Neva, he gets a really good, interesting arc. You know, zealot, true believer, and then he feels betrayed because he has been fooled. 
and then he seeks out to destroy what he used to worship. What's funny about it is Zoanon absolutely was guiding the destiny of the Sever team. Zoanon was effectively their god and he was real. He just wasn't the benevolent god that they believed him to be. And I think that's really interesting. I know there's a religion that has that idea of like the fake god that's trying to hide the other god, the demiurge and all that stuff. I can't remember. There are numerous sects of Gnostic Christians who believe that. So yeah, that's a very obscure and old branch of Christianity. But yeah, absolutely. Anyway, let's talk about the cliffhanger. So the doctor goes in to talk to Zoanon, has a very difficult conversation with him in which Zoanon refuses to acknowledge that the doctor is a separate entity. And we end with the doctor lying prone on the ground while Zoanon's child voice basically screams, who am I? Who am I? It's really disturbing. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Yeah. And we cut to cliffhanger and we're into part four. So we get Leela being awesome some more and realizing when her fancy gun runs out of juice because, you know, technology and she just pulls out a knife. She's like, yeah, I don't need this. I'm going to go do my thing. But really, let's be honest, she's smart enough to pull the doctor out. And that's the most important part. And while we're on Leela, I did look it up. Leela from Futurama was named after this Leela. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, I found that out. It was mentioned by Matt Groening on one of the Futurama Blu-ray discs. Wow. He always was a Doctor Who fan, so it kind of makes sense. I just never made that connection as something that he would have consciously done. That's really cool. I looked it up because I had a suspicion because I just thought about the time of when this episode came out, the age of the people that worked on Futurama, the creators. I was like, I bet they've probably watched some Doctor Who from this period. And lo and behold, they had. Yep. Now, two things that I was not as happy about, and they came in part four. One. I think I know what this is. One, the unnecessary wrestling match. Because why in the world did we need a wrestling match between the Doctor and one of these Tesh people? Very, very frustrating to me. But the other part was the mind control. I knew you were going to say mind control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think that this story was so interesting because it's these two groups of people who are just this crazy zealot-like people, and that should have been enough to lead them. There shouldn't have been a need to do mind control because they should just be following Zoanon. So that's what I really found frustrating. I was like, lean more into the crazy zealot side as opposed to going straight for mind control. And the mind control of Leela particularly, because it felt so unnecessary. We already have a tenseness. We already have danger. Why do we need to add another element of danger to the doctor that gets resolved both times and under a minute? It just seemed unnecessary. Yeah, but I do like how that gives an opportunity for Neva to come in and have his hero moment before dying gloriously. Oh, now that's great. Very Leroy Jenkins of him. (laughs) Yes. Now, he disappeared, (laughs) so I don't know how dead he is. I took it as Zoanon just kind of disintegrated him or something, so they kind of just both went out. That's how I read it. Yeah, I definitely took it as he's dead. Okay. (laughs) I just really liked his character, and it would have been cool to get an idea of what his life was like after he stopped being this crazy zealot. I think he would have just been like a month or two in the tank, just (laughs) drinking every day, (laughs) ostracizing himself. He'd become Fat Thor. 
Basically, yes. <laughs> I mean, so I guess let's talk about that because that's one thing that's very interesting is I really do like the fact that instead of just like, and the main threat is gone, bye everybody, I'm out of here. We spent a good chunk of time of this fourth episode dealing with, okay, how do we clean up this mess? The threat is gone, but we still have a lot of things we need to sort out. And you see the difficulty, the back and forth of how the Tesher bunch of dicks. <laughs> What I really love about the ending and how the Doctor resolves Zoanon is he doesn't dismantle it. He doesn't even reprogram Zoanon to be good. He just takes the multiple personalities out. To me, that's an interesting concept because I think in so many other stories, we would have either had it dismantled or actively reprogrammed to change its nature. But here we just take away the one thing that's driving it insane. Which was the Doctor himself. Exactly. It's really cool. It's really, really cool. I really enjoyed it. I love when he created the nice lounge for them to sit on. And Leela, like me, is like, I'm not going to sit like a normal person. So I'm going to sit crisscross applesauce <laughs> on this thing. I 100% do that. Check for Leela. Also, when they sit on the sofa, the doctor eats a jelly baby, giving us our third jelly baby instance of the cereal. Pretty sure that's the most we've had in an entire cereal so far. It is. Almost positive. Yep. And I know I did enjoy the names, you know, how the seventh team and the name the Tesh came about, the breaking down of language over time of what they originally were from those, you know, the original separation of that survey team or whatever they were. No, no, the seventh team was the survey team. And yeah, from the original landing of the colonist ship or whatever. But I couldn't help every single time he. <laughs> They said that they were the Tesh. I, I was thinking, like, they're just huge fans of John Tesh and his music. <laughs> I just love him so much. Amazing. Yeah. And then we have Leela just singing aboard, which I was wondering how they were going to do that, because I guess it makes sense for her to head out because, I mean, screw them, right? They ostracized her and she was right after all. Like, what did she do? Stick around and... And now they want her as their leader. Right. It makes sense for her to want to skedaddle. Yeah, I agree with that. And of course, that gives us our new companion. And I really love, Julie alluded to it in her <laughs> intro, but I really, really love what we hear from the TARDIS of, you know, no, don't press that or whatever it is. Don't touch that as the TARDIS dematerializes. And so she's forced her way on board, made the TARDIS take off, and now the Doctor's stuck with her. It's that kind of gumption that we have seen all through this story from her that I really love. All right, that's the end. Before we jump into our scores, any instances deserving of the camp count? Actually, I don't think I so. I don't think time. so. Kind of want to say Tom Baker's head. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's camp. I can't give you. I, I don't no. think it's camp. I don't think I can give you one on that one. Okay. Or a half one on that one. All right, then we will leave it. No camp count points. Riley, you're up first on scoring this and giving your okay. end summary. The plot and the premise are an original. My God, the execution was excellent. And they added on just a little couple changes to make up for that lack of originality that were a wonderful addition. This is kind of like a great remix of a hit song. The production value was surprisingly amazing. Even though we had to deal with invisible monsters, but we discussed the need for that. Leela looks to be a very good addition. I would like to see her relationship with the Doctor develop more over time, and I, other than her just being capable adventure buddy, and I think that's going to happen. I really enjoyed this one, and I feel like this was a big change for the show, a big shift. 
And I think it's going to be a change I'm really going to enjoy. So I'm going to give this nine Leela killing sprees out of 10. All right. And I will go next. And I will say this is not one I really remember from childhood. And honestly, it wasn't one I really thought of. I knew it existed, but I didn't really have any feelings about it, positive or negative. It was just kind of there. And rewatching it for this... Wow, I loved it. It was really good. The world building, the attention to detail, just the way it all plays out. Looking at this with a critical eye really, really endeared it to me. And Riley's already touched on so many of the other good things, the direction, the sets, the elements that are just built in through the story. It's not, as Riley says, it's not an original concept, but it's just executed really, really well. And I think if this had been in the hands of a different or lesser director, we probably would be rating this like a six or a seven. But for me, this gets nine faces of Tom Baker carved into a mountain out of 10. (laughs) Julie, wrap it up. Oh, man. I don't know that I can really say much more. It's a really good story, everyone. The writing... Honestly, I don't know that I've seen writing like this in a very, very long time on the show. A lot of times our saving graces have been the directors, but man, the dialogue is just superb. Taking the spin on the story and making it original enough to be refreshing is really good. Leela is great. Music is great. I had a few little nitpicky things there at the end, especially that mind control bit. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's mostly what I see wrong with this story. So I'm also going to go with nine. I don't know. Green Zell is out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We are unanimous on a score of nine. So that obviously gives us a story average of nine, which makes it the highest so far this season. Now, we all commented on the quality of the scripts and we have another set of Chris Boucher scripts next time. Are we excited for the Robots of Death? Yeah. I mean, the title could use some work, but I'm ready. This season, five out of six story titles are the something of something. Yeah. We've had the hand of fear, the face of evil, and next we've got the robots of death. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time, as mentioned, to talk about the robots of death. I'm very excited for that one. I'm very, very excited for that one. So I hope it lives up to expectations. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so very much for listening. And of course, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Very Leroy Jenkins, was recorded on Tuesday the 24th of October 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at @watchers4d. And you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, when in doubt, charge and yell, Leroy Jenkins!